Amen. If you would remain standing now, we'll read together uh, Romans chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 18 to 32. These are the words of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, in your infinite wisdom, you caused men to write your word down, and you've caused it to be preserved even through periods of time like the Middle Ages, uh, so that we might have it. We might have multiple volumes of it in our homes. And so, Father, we pray and ask that you would continue to bless us through this word, conform us to the image of Christ so that he might be magnified in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we are uh, considering the sixth paragraph of the fifth chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And remember that all along over the past few weeks, I guess maybe a month or so, a month and a half, uh, we've taken a little bit of break in between. We've been thinking about God's providence. And so just at the outset, I want you to make a distinction in your mind between God's decree and God's providence because they can sound very similar to one another. God's decree is the fact that He determined everything that should come to pass 
before the foundation of the earth. Every event leading up to the crucifixion of Christ and ultimately to the consummation of His kingdom, God determined all of that before the foundation of the earth. But He didn't determine that and then step away and let things work out. God is working in His creation. He's governing it. He's disposing all things according to His decree. He is active in it. Last, uh, the last time we met, um, we considered the fact that God is active in the lives of His children as a father. And so sometimes we experience seasons of weakness in our lives where we battle sin and we're not winning that battle. But that's an aspect of God's providence. He is using that in your life to remind you of the corruption of your own heart, of the need that you have for ongoing mortification. You must be working along with God. Well, what about the wicked? How does God's providence work toward men that He has never determined to save? Is is God working? or, Or are the wicked... Do we think of them as just sort of pinballs that are drifting in the machine? Radical elements that are just there. God's mindful of the righteous. He's protecting us from the wicked's plans and plots, but but they're sort of out there just drifting like lonely planets. How do we think about that? Well, that's what the sixth paragraph is intended to address. I want you to remember back those of you who are here on Wednesday nights, we talked about, the first question that we asked in our study of the sovereignty of God was this one. Didn't God hate the unborn infant Esau? Now that was a hard question. Didn't God hate the unborn infant Esau? Now it's intended to elicit something of a visceral reaction. You say, wow, no way, there's no And then we get to the Scriptures and we read from Romans 9, and that's exactly what it says. Esau I have hated, Jacob have I loved, before either of them were born. And so we worked through that. Esau, we might reason, hadn't done anything wrong. How could God God hate him? He hadn't done anything wrong. And besides, God doesn't hate anybody. Well, until you read Psalm 5.5 and Psalm 11.5, that his soul hates the wicked. And what this exposes when we think about questions like this, and as we get into this paragraph, what it exposes in you and me is this. That we are very happy to develop our beliefs about God and the way that He operates in His world based on intuition rather than what the Bible actually says. Rather than do the hard work of looking to the Word and trying to understand how God is operative in His, in His world, we rely on our intuition. That's a very bad thing to do. Instead, we have to develop our beliefs from God's Word. We start there. And what we will see tonight is that God enacts judgments against the wicked in this life. God enacts judgments against the wicked in this life. And so what we'll see is that in this life, God judges the wicked by blinding and hardening their hearts and in giving them over to various other punishments. So let me just read to you the sixth paragraph before we get started here. 
We'll see a, a few points. Uh, this is how uh, the Westminster divines worked out this doctrine. As for those wicked and ungodly men whom God, as a righteous judge for former sins, doth blind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understandings and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraws the gifts which they had and exposes them to such objects as their corruption make occasion of sin. And withal, gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves, even under those means which God uses for the softening of others. So let's work through that. We're going to see in a few points. Here's the first point we'll see is that God's disposition to the wicked is as a judge. He, his disposition to the wicked is, is as a judge. And then what we're going to notice from the confession is that one of his judgments, there is a sort of a basic temporal judgment that is common to every wicked man. And then there are sort of other judgments that he may or may not enact in the lives of wicked men. So notice, first of all, God's disposition to the wicked is as a judge. And, and as you work through your confession, what you'll notice is that that there's a balancing, as it were, between the fifth paragraph and the sixth paragraph. What is God's disposition toward you as a believer? Well, His disposition toward you is as a father. His disposition to you is as a father. There's a, an intimate and affectionate love that God has toward all those who embrace Christ by faith. But toward the wicked, God's disposition is as a righteous judge, not a father. And what is the justification of his disposition toward them? The confession says four former sins. Now that also is common between the righteous and the wicked. You also have former sins. You and I are also sinning on a daily basis, both not doing the things that God requires of us and doing things that He tells us not to. And He disciplines you for it. He disciplines you for it. But in His role as judge against the wicked, He doesn't discipline. He punishes now, I make a distinction between those two because in places like Hebrews chapter 10, we find that God disciplines His children, but He punishes the wicked. He punishes the wicked. He disciplines the righteous, and He punishes the wicked. So the first thing that we notice then simply is that God's disposition toward the wicked is as a judge. That's all they will ever know Him as. Now, this is not to say that they never experience His kindness in this life, that they never experience the loving disposition of God. They do, and we talked about that Wednesday night. The rain that God sends upon the righteous and the wicked are exhibitions of His love and care. But they will never know His covenantal love in the way that righteous men do. So let's notice then what uh, God's basic judgment against the wicked is that he gives them over to blindness and hardness. Think back with me to the Garden of Eden. And Adam was created perfect. He, 
was, existed in the image of God. He was holy and happy, as we learn in the children's catechism. He and Eve were holy and happy. They had blessed communion with God. Adam had the beatific vision of God each and every day of his existence until he gave in to temptation and ate the forbidden fruit. And it was at that moment that God enacted a judgment against him. And that judgment was, in part, that he died inside. And his body began to die as well. But there was a spiritual death that happened to Adam. And so what we learned then is when we talk about this blindness and hardness, what you should understand is that this is God's judgment against humanity for Adam's sin. When he sinned, you and I sinned. When he fell, you and I fell. And that same disposition that Adam had when he said, Lord, when he began to blame shift and his mind was affected by the fall, all of this you and I have inherited. Because in Genesis chapter 5, it says that after that, Adam had sons after his own image. Now, this is why we have Genesis 4 and 5. What does it show? Well, Cain and Abel, they were born outside the garden. They were born with sinful hearts. Why did Cain kill his brother? Because sin affected him. And then in Genesis chapter 5, and he died, and he died, and he died. So an aspect of God's judgment against all of humanity is blindness and hardness. Now, now, what does that mean exactly? When we say blindness and hardness, what does that mean? Well, obviously, it doesn't mean physical blindness. Not every man is born physically blind. It doesn't mean that you have some sort of recalcitrance in your body, a hardness of bone. It's speaking spiritually. By nature, all men are blind to God's truth and hard in their affections toward Him. We are born with a natural hatred for Him. This is what the Scriptures Mean. Remember when um, Jesus looked around at the Pharisees and he could sense the hardness of their hearts. They had a porosis of heart, the scriptures say. God blinded and hardened mankind. And this is the fundamental and minimum, as it were, sentence against mankind. Remember, as we go back to Romans chapter 1, how is this exhibited in verse 24? Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. In verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In a, on a practical level then, you and I should never be surprised at the depth of wickedness amongst mankind. How can, just a few weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, Hamas released their, their first American hostage. And you remember what, who they released? It's a four-year-old girl. What kind of men who, who practice any kind of just war 
go into a country and take captive four-year-old children. How do you explain something like that? Well, from, a, from a, a purely natural perspective, men might say, well, they've got some sort of mental defect, right? Maybe the, a certain region of their brain hasn't developed properly. Maybe that's true. But when we come back to the Scriptures, the way that the Scriptures describe this is that this is God's judgment against them. Their hearts are hard, and their minds are blind. They become futile in their thinking. And, and one of the ways that I, I, I like to illustrate that is you think about a, a, a dog chasing a rabbit around a tree and they go around and around and around and around and around and the dog never catches the rabbit. This is the way that wicked men think in their hardness. They never catch on anything. Truth is a total enigma to a wicked man. In Romans chapter 11, we read this. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. The basic judgment of God against the wicked is a hardness of heart, and a blindness of mind they do not understand. Remember Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Where does he say it? In his heart. He truly believes that. There's no God. Even though, even though we read Romans chapter 1, 18 to 33, even though there's evidence even within him crying out, God is there. But he presses this down in unrighteousness. So the basic judgment then that God um, gives against the wicked is to harden their hearts and blind their minds. Thirdly, there are various other judgments that God may enact against the wicked in this life. Let's consider just a few of them. He, one, withholds saving grace. He withholds saving grace from them, which, and I think the confession as we go back and, and consider this sentence from them, he not only withholds his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understandings and wrought upon in their hearts. The confession is very, very, very clear to say that God could save these men if he wanted. At this moment, if God desired... He could work upon the heart of every Hamas terrorist and bring him to Christ in an instant. And so you must never imagine that there is some sort of shortcoming in God's providence that He cannot reach these men. The reason that they go unconverted is because God withholds His grace from them. We're going to come back to that at the very end. But there are various other judgments against the wicked. One, God might withdraw grace. And as we work through this, I want, I want you just to notice as kind of a practice in your personal reading how all of these examples are drawn from Scripture and then applied generally. So let's look at the first one then. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 12, we read, for to the one who has, more will be given. 
and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is repeated in Matthew chapter 25, verse 29. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. What the Scriptures are saying there is, you've got a wicked man whose heart is hard, whose eyes are blind, he cannot perceive the working of the Lord, and he doesn't want to. But there are things in life that he takes pleasure in that are not godly. And what Jesus is saying there is that God will take those things away too. It is His prerogative to remove them. John Calvin commented on this, says, indeed, and indeed, it frequently happens that the reprobate are endued with imminent gifts. Think of a, a great speaker, for instance, or a singer, or an artist of some sort, or a mathematician. And they appear to resemble the children of God. But there is nothing of real value about them, for their mind is destitute of piety and has only the glitter of an empty show. Matthew is therefore justified in saying that they have nothing, for what they have is of no value in the sight of God and has no permanency within. Remember, every talent, every gift is from God. Every single one. And it is to be used in His service. The wicked only using the gifts God has given for their own vain glory may find themselves bereft of those gifts. The man who's sung so beautifully suddenly has no voice. This is within God's prerogative. You think about... Remember the parable of the talents? And you had the one man who took his talent and he hid it in the ground. And when the landowner came back, or when the investor came back, he took that talent away from him and gave it to the other. There's an example in Acts chapter 13, if you want to turn over there with me, of this very thing. Acts chapter 13, verses 10 to 11. There's a a longer story here. Paul um, and Barnabas, they encountered um, a a magician of sorts, one who was able to work some supernatural or perhaps paranormal um, gifts. But we're going to pick up and read Acts chapter 13, verses 10 and 11. Uh, So there's this man named Bar-Jesus, that's verse 6, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God, verse 8, but Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So you see what happens there is that God, in his judgment against this wicked man, took his sight. He took it away. So God may withdraw gifts 
he may also expose these men to their own corruption. You and I, on a regular basis, at least on the Lord's Day, we pray, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And that's a sincere prayer. I am, we are asking God, one, to deliver us from the corruption of our own hearts and, and, and to protect us from entering into temptation, even from encountering anything that will draw us away from Christ. Or that if He should ordain that we encounter temptation, that He would give us such strength that it would, it would be meaningless. We would swat it away like a fly. The wicked man never prays that. He never prays that. He delights in deviance. He does not study how to defeat sin. He makes plans to enjoy it more and more. If he prayed, it would be, Lord, give me opportunity to indulge myself. Sin is not his enemy. The law of God is. He hates the law and any suggestion of righteous obligation. And so we have some examples of this. I'm going to skip down and, and go over to 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8. There's an encounter here in 2 Kings between Hazael and Elijah. Elisha, I'm sorry. 2 Kings 8, 12. And at this point, Hazael is, is not an official in Syria. But notice what Elisha says to him. And Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses and you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? He's referring to himself there. Who am I that I would do that? Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. And you see, here's how you're to understand that. You imagine, imagine a young child, and he's, he's very, very small. And so he's so small that he can't reach over the countertop. Now he knows that mommy and daddy have said to him, don't touch the cookies on the countertop. And so you think, well, you know, my child's really obedient. He's, has your child ever stolen a cookie? He's never stolen a cookie. Never at all. He's never stolen one. Never, ever. Totally truthful. I ask him, have you stolen cookie? No, I haven't stolen a cookie. But then suddenly he gets taller. And he's able, do you see, to take the cookies that he's not supposed to take. So what limited him was simply his capacity. And this is what happens with Hazael. As soon as the Lord elevates him in his providence, as soon as the Lord evidence, elevates him to the position of king, now he has the power to express the full corruption of his heart. The same is true with Cain. Murdering his brother, as soon as he saw him, he killed him. Think as well of Judas in Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 to 16. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? If they'd have said, We'll give you nothing, then Judas may have said, Well, I'll go my way. But they gave him money. And so the corruption of his heart was exposed to betray 
Jesus. God gives them over to their own lusts, to temptations of the world, to the power of Satan. In Psalm 109, verse 6, David asks the Lord to punish an evil man by giving him over to evil. The man who's lying about me, Lord, raise up an accuser against him. Let him become entangled in his own sins. And of course, again, Judas Iscariot, we read in Luke chapter 22, verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. God gave him into the hand of Satan to enact his evil. But the confession, it concludes, even though God might enact all these temporal judgments against wicked men, giving them to the corruption, allowing them, handing them over um, to the things that they desire, um, withdrawing the gifts that He's given to them, we are reminded that they also hardened themselves in the end. The confession shows that God hardens and the sinner hardens. Think of this example from Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. God is speaking there of His judgment against this man. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, he won't respond. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. But then we read in Exodus 8.15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. But again, the Scriptures are very careful to remind us that even as Pharaoh is hardening his heart, he's not hardening, hardening his heart against the will of God. It is perfectly congruent with God's will for Pharaoh. And yet, Scripture teaches that the same means by which God draws His elect to Himself hardens the reprobate. What do you think about this? The sun that rises in the sky and warms the earth, it, it melts the candle and causes the flower to blossom. You see, it has multiple effects. And we see the same thing in the means that God appoints. You think about yourself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 to 16, we read this. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? You know, there are some people that you can put on a certain perfume and you have, you have some people that say, wow, that smells really good, I like that. And, and a, another person right next to you can say, that is awful. And you know, the same thing is said about cilantro. Certain people really enjoy eating cilantro. My dad hated it. And apparently there's a biological disposition that cilantro tastes like soap to some people, and they despise it. The same thing can be said about the believer and you as you live amongst a corrupt world. You're going to enter a room, and you love Christ, and you love living for Him, and you reject certain things, and there will be people that say, I want to hang out with you. And then there will be others who say, 
I'm out of here. You have the aroma of death. The same thing can be said of Christ himself. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14 says, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The, the same Christ that you and I long to see is a stumbling block to the Jews. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 to 8. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the foundation for us, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The believer is the aroma of life to some, the aroma of death to others. Christ himself is our cornerstone and the longing of our heart, but for the unbeliever is a stone of stumbling. They trip over him. And then finally, the preached word. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, this is Isaiah's commissioning. We read this. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. There's, don't ever think that when you are sharing the gospel that you are ineffective. There is no such thing as ineffective gospel ministry. Remember Isaiah 55, God said, my word that goes forth from my mouth will accomplish what I intend. It softens the hearts of some and hardens others. Acts chapter 28, 26 to 27. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. And so in all of this, you should understand that the wicked are not, they are not radical elements in the creation. God's providence is active within them too. Hardening, blinding, acting his judgments upon them, removing their gifts, so that in this life God judges the wicked by blinding and hardening their hearts and in giving them over to various other punishments. This is why you and I have to be so tender. This is why you and I pray and ask that the Lord would give us a tenderness toward holiness and piety. Because the, the hardness of heart can creep like frostbite. You, you know, it, the toes get cold and then they start to turn purple and then white and then before you know it, they have to be removed. Sin does the same thing in us. In judgment against the wicked, God blinds and hardens them against their spiritual good. They never perceive it. He enacts this judgment for former sins. This is not a baseless sentence upon the wicked. In addition to blindness and hardness, God in a variety of ways enacts His judgments against the wicked in this life according to His own wisdom. Now I want to conclude by saying this. Many 
righteous children of God may consider the punishments of the wicked and grow concerned. Well, I struggle with sin. I I don't always want to come to worship. I I don't know if I'm... I I don't sense a, a personal sensitivity to the working of the Holy Spirit. I don't love reading the Word. Is... Is God giving me over? This is not a bad thing. It is good to take heed to yourself. Remember Jesus said to the apostles in the garden, watch. Watch and pray. The great distinction is that the children of God are not hardened against Him. When He disciplines you, you accept it as the hand of a loving Father. You receive His rebukes as often as they may come by examining yourself. Not by saying, how dare you? And by seeking His forgiveness. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we conclude tonight by remembering that you possess the soul of every man. Every man belongs to you. Every soul belongs to you because there's not a soul in existence not created by you. And as we think about these things, Lord, we we struggle within ourselves to, to find answers that perhaps have not been given. But Lord, we ask that you would help us to be satisfied, content with what your word says. And as we think about your providence, both toward the righteous and toward the wicked, that we would conclude with comfort. Remembering that that even though the world seems chaotic at times, even the wicked men shooting each other at a gas station on Presley Boulevard, Lord, you, you are not absent from that. But all of these things are working together to accomplish your plan for your creation. And we bless you for that. We ask, Lord, for ourselves now that you would give us tender hearts, that our consciences would be very tender, that we would repent of sin immediately upon knowing it, that we would be grieved deeply even for the smallest of things. Lord, do not give us over but deliver us through Christ, we pray in His name.